you're seeking biblical wisdom and understanding in these difficult and trying times, and you recognize the power of God's Word to delve deep into the issues of the heart, then welcome to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney, husband, father, counselor, author, and teacher. Join us for Christ-centered, gospel-driven truth concerning our individual, marital, and parenting struggles. This is Biblical Counseling Today. In the stress-filled, divided world we all live in today, isn't it nice when we experience a little bit of peace? But what exactly is real peace? Peace is most often defined by what is absent, conflict. Peace is the opposite of war or fighting or combat. Peace in most people's minds occur when circumstances are going smoothly in their lives. But the biblical definition of peace is much bigger and better than that. It focuses on not what is primarily absent, but on what is present, a rest or contentment only found in our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Christians have peace because Jesus died on the cross and rose again, conquering sin and death. Because of Christ, Christians are at peace with God, no longer at war with him. So true peace is only found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is a peace that is not tied to our circumstances, but totally to our Lord. This is the sort of peace we need in our marriage, not simply the absence of conflict, but the presence of true rest and contentment in Christ. Unfortunately, this is easier said than done. We can often experience just as much stress and unresolved conflict in our marriage as we can in the outside world. So we need to dig down into the heart of the matter and seek to understand and implement biblical peace in our marriage. But along with true peace, we need to arrive at a place of thankfulness in our marriage as well. I think this is so often overlooked as a necessary virtue. It seems to me that we live in a time where most people are deeply ungrateful. Maybe that has always been the case. Certainly the children of Israel weren't very grateful when they were delivered from slavery those many thousand years ago. But in an era of high demands and expectations, discontentedness seems to be on the rise. And in my almost 30 years of counseling experience, I've seen more and more couples lack real thankfulness for their spouses. Many show very little gratitude, but rather high expectations and requirements for their spouses instead. So if peace in marriage is the presence of rest and contentment, then it makes sense that it is also connected to thankfulness. When our souls are at rest and we experience peace in Jesus Christ, we should be grateful for all situations in our marriage, whether we are getting our way or not at the moment. So let's consider how we get there, how to have peace in our homes and thankful hearts for the rich gifts that God has given to us. So back we go to Colossians 3 to ground our discussion of peace in marriage. The Apostle Paul writes in verse 15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Just because we are at peace with God in Christ doesn't mean Christians always let peace rule our hearts. 
Instead, our hearts are often ruled by anxiety or doubt or fears or anger, especially in marriage. But when Christ rules our hearts, it makes logical sense that his peace should rule us as well. Peace should be our way of life, our disposition, our central attitude in our marriage. Again, biblical peace is rest and contentment even in the midst of difficult situations. It is not those circumstances that should rule our hearts, but the peace of Christ. Paul writes that Christians are called to peace. We are commanded to be at peace. In Christ, we have nothing to fear, nothing to be anxious about, nothing to be stressed out over. Peace must rule. But this one short verse about peace also demonstrates that it has a strong social or relational component. Our peace in Christ leads us to having peace with one another. That makes sense, doesn't it? If Christians are at rest in Christ, our Christian relationship should be characterized by peace. In the world, life is dog-eat-dog. People are at war and in conflict with one another all the time. But the church is called to be at peace. Our relationships with one another should be peaceful. That doesn't mean we won't have conflict. It does mean we will seek to solve that conflict with one another. Which leads us to the fact that the Christian home, as the most basic of Christian communities, should be at peace as well. So I'll ask you this series of opening questions. First, How would you characterize your home? Is it peaceful or is it chaotic and unruly? Are conflicts settled in a timely manner or are they avoided? Or do they just simmer below the surface? A peaceful home doesn't mean that the home is always quiet. Actually, it may be quite loud with joyful and energetic play and conversation. Being totally quiet might mean no one talks to each other which is not the definition of peace. But the home should be a restful and content place as well, not a place of stress and tension. The Christian home should be a respite from the conflict and hostility of this world, not one that adds to it. In order to maintain a peaceful home, then, we must begin by distinguishing between surface peace and real peace. Surface peace is just the temporary absence of conflict. Let me say that again. Surface peace is just the temporary absence of conflict. Nothing has really been solved. No real reconciliation has occurred. We are just in a period between open hostilities. It is sort of like when you break up a fight between your children and send them to their rooms. At that point, there is peace. But is it real peace? Not really. Not until your children can play together harmoniously as their true peace. Surface peace is often a result of simply confrontation avoidance. If we just don't talk about it, then it goes away, swept under the proverbial rug. Again, just because we're not fighting doesn't mean we're at peace. Surface peace often causes even more resentment and hostility to build up. Without conflict resolution, family members can even become internally hopeless that we can truly ever be in relationship with one another. Surface peace is window dressing. It is a facade, and it will crumble. 
Real peace, on the other hand, is first the result of letting the peace of Christ reign or rule in our hearts. And secondly, it is wrought from the hard work of problem solving. Only when problems are addressed, forgiveness and grace extended, and reconciliation occurs do we have real peace. Again, real peace is not just everyone getting along all the time. It is the result of working towards real understanding and conflict resolution. So let's go briefly through seven principles of biblical conflict resolution in regards to peacemaking. First, conflict resolution comes from a heart of love for Christ and for one another. Without love, it is impossible to have peace. Even when you are angry with your spouse, you must return to a place of love for Christ and your spouse in order to get to peace. Second, conflict resolution takes time. It takes lots of conversation. It takes lots of listening. It takes hard work. Long-standing peace in marriage means we must actually take the time to be with each other, know each other, learn from one another. Third, biblical conflict resolution begins with self-examination. You must get the log out of your own eye first. What did I do to start this problem? What did I do to add to this problem? What did I do to make it worse, etc.? What is my part in the formula? Fourth principle is confess your sin. Make your own godly apology. Be first to bring your sin to the other person and confess it. Say, I was wrong, not just I'm sorry. Fifth principle is lovingly confront. Don't avoid confrontation. Don't just take all the blame just to make peace. Be willing to lovingly point out the other person's sin if he or she doesn't do it first. Sixth principle, be ready to forgive. Conflict resolution never happens without forgiveness. Without it, bitterness will persist and you will only have surface peace if not continued hostility. Finally, give grace to begin again. To really solve problems, we must give one another opportunities to change. If we don't believe in change, then we don't believe in the gospel and the power of God. Change may come slowly, but we need to give more grace and trust God to work. Now, I'll go more in depth into this conversation about conflict resolution in a later podcast. For now, just think about how to apply these in your marriage. And most importantly, and most bluntly, get your head out of the sand. I just need to emphasize how important it is to resist the temptation to avoid conflict. As I've said before, people tell me all the time, I just hate conflict. Well, who doesn't? No one in his right mind loves, enjoys, or looks forward to conflict. Yet our fear or hatred of conflict must not lead us to put our heads in the sand. Peace cannot be achieved in our marriage by simply avoiding conflict. Please do not believe the lie that marriage is supposed to be devoid of conflict. Marriage is made up of two sinners in the most intimate of relationships. There will be conflict. So do the work necessary to truly have a peace-filled marriage. Peace takes time because oneness takes time. Peace in marriage, if you think about it, is so entwined with oneness. 
Spouses are either living in harmony and unity or in separateness and division. And this oneness takes real time, not just quality time, but quantity time as well. Unfortunately, we live in a time where people have almost a pathological fear of wasting time. Busyness has become a virtue. We're all much too busy to waste time just hanging out and visiting. We have the next project to attend to, the next activity, the next event. But marital peace takes real time in real heart relationship. Not just an occasional date night, but regular daily time. Why is all this time necessary? Because that's how we grow in knowledge of one another. That's how we come to understand the other person's thought process and heart. That's how we come to become more like one another as we communicate our hearts and minds. In a day and age where communication is becoming more and more abbreviated and less and less real, this is hard to accomplish. We must slow down our lives in order to find this level of peace and oneness in marriage. And then another way to think about peace is to consider whether your marriage is more like one of two intimate spouses or two semi-friendly roommates. Roommates share space with one another. They may even share tasks and responsibilities. They may or may not always be great friends, but they manage to get along. Yet roommates are not really close and intimate with one another. A roommate marriage looks very similar to a standard college roommate situation. It may seem very peaceful, but it is really only surface peace. Truly intimate spouses aren't just roommates who inhabit the same space. They really know and care and are one with one another. Yet this sort of intimacy will cause conflict. Thus spouses can do one of two things. They can actually solve problems and grow together, or they can move apart and succumb to a roommate marriage. A roommate marriage is a lot less work, often much less painful, and yet in the end much less satisfying. The avoidance of conflict will only make couples get to a place of comfortable distance. Again, we'll talk more about the roommate marriage versus the intimate marriage in a future podcast. So let's wrap up this first section on peace with two final questions. What do I do when my spouse is acting like my enemy? In other words, how can a marriage be at peace when one spouse is acting more like an enemy than like a friend? Isn't it a horrible shame when you hear divorced couples say they are better friends now than when they were married? That should never be. Christian spouses should be the closest of friends with one another. Marriage is a covenant of companionship and is to be based on intimate friendship. Yet we can act more like enemies than friends at times. That's certainly the case with Roger and Sarah right now. Sarah is just plain miserable. She comes home after a long day of work and promptly goes into her bedroom, staying on social media most every evening. Roger tries to talk to Sarah, but she refuses. She just doesn't want to fight anymore. It's easier just to be roommates for now. Roger goes back and forth between being sympathetic and being just plain angry. He wants to give her space, but is tired of being rejected too. So what is Roger to do? What if your spouse doesn't want to be at peace with you? 
Well, here's a few basics to remember in this challenging place. First, don't add fuel to the fire. Put down all of your weapons, and I mean all of them. Resist the temptation to fight back and to engage in warfare. Second, return good for evil. Again, it's much easier to return evil for evil. Do good to your spouse when he or she is dishing out any evil. Third, love your enemy. This is the clear command of Christ. Give love and lots of it. Roger has to keep finding ways to actively show love to Sarah. Finally, seek the grace of God. You need to gain your strength from the Lord. He must keep your heart soft. You must have the love of Christ to be able to love your enemy. Roger cannot do this alone without the grace of God. Second question is, how do we make peacemaking an everyday task of marriage? Whether you're married to your best friend or you act more like rivals or even enemies, sometimes even siblings, peacemaking is your full-time job in marriage. Peacemaking, not peacekeeping. Not just staying out of the doghouse or just trying to keep your spouse happy. Again, avoiding conflict doesn't equate to true peace. So how do you make peacemaking an everyday task? First, you're to be constantly vigilant to not let a root of bitterness grow up in your heart. Roger could certainly become bitter at Sarah the longer this drags on. Second, you must actually see problems and work to solve them. Roger should take time to think about what his side of the problem is. Maybe Sarah is acting like his enemy because he has ignored problems for way too long. Finally, we are to be at rest and content in our marriage. There is no way we will regularly make peace if we are discontent in our marriage. Remember, your contentment for your spouse is connected to your overall contentment in Christ. So make it your goal to be a peacemaker. Instead of just resolving to fight for your rights and make sure your spouse meets your needs, seek to be in harmony with your spouse. That may mean lots of sacrifice. It will take hard work. It will mean dying to self. But it's worth it. All for the glory of God. Now let's return to Colossians 3, verse 15, since I left out three very important words. Again, verse 15 reads, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. As I said in the introduction, peace and thankfulness must go together, hand in hand, in a Christian marriage. So it makes sense that Paul puts them together here as well. Let me make one big point at the outset. Ingratitude is a mark of paganism. That's pretty harsh of me, isn't it? Why is that the case? Well, for one thing, in Romans 1.21, we read these words of Paul speaking about non-Christians. Quote, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Unquote. A central characteristic of a non-believer is a lack of thankfulness. They not only suppress the truth about God, but they refuse to give him the thanks that he is due. 
This should be a regular slap in the face to us when we display ingratitude towards God of any sort. When we refuse to thank God, we are acting like pagans. When we don't acknowledge how much he has done for us, we are not giving him the honor he is due. So to put it in the positive, thankfulness is yet another defining mark of a Christian. Christians are deeply thankful for all that God has done and all his powerful actions that he continues to do. Thankfulness should not just strike us emotionally on the Thanksgiving holiday or just once in a while. It should be a regular disposition and attitude. If it is not, we are no better than the ungrateful pagans. These three small words, and be thankful, are not just an afterthought for Paul. They are central to the Christian life and to the Christian marriage. So let's talk about thankfulness in marriage. First off, are you thankful for your spouse? You knew I was going to ask that question, didn't you? This is also a defining question in your marriage. You probably thank God when your spouse accepted your request for a first date or when you were asked on a date for the first time. Hopefully you thank God when your spouse said, I do. I'm sure you were even thankful for your spouse during the honeymoon period of your marriage. But what about now? Are you still thankful for your spouse? Even after seeing all of his or her warts, problems, and idiosyncrasies? Even after all the pain he or she has brought into your life? Even when you feel unloved or disrespected? Or have time and struggles withered the amount of gratitude you have towards God for gifting you with your spouse, simply giving you the opportunity to be married? It is essential that we remember that thankfulness is based on facts, not feelings. We tend to be most thankful when we have a rush of warm feelings or affections. Thanking someone is almost reflexive when we are surprised by an outpouring of love or an unexpected kindness. So we tend to get in the habit of only being thankful when we are on the receiving end of something extra special. For example, husbands, are you just thankful when your wife cooks your favorite meal? Or are you thankful for every meal she provides for you? Wives, are you thankful for your husband only when he does something above and beyond? Or also for the ordinary things he does, like going to work every day. As Christians, our thankfulness to God and our spouse should be based on facts, not just feelings. We are to be thankful because an understanding of the truth compels us on towards thankfulness. So let me hit you with the facts and just the facts. Fact, your spouse is a gift from God all the time through good times and bad. Fact, marriage is designed by God and thus is a high privilege for us to participate in, even through the toil and pain. Fact, your spouse does much more good for your life than bad. This is the case for even some of the worst spouses out there. Fact, you are not the easiest person to love. Yes, I'm talking about you. Do you see how these facts and many others move you from ingratitude to thankfulness? The problem is that our minds don't often dwell on the facts. They are either looking at other conflicting facts and behaviors or simply ignoring the facts. Often we are stuck in our negative feelings rather than thinking on what is true. 
I know that the phrase count your blessings has become just a cliche in Christianity, but there is so much truth in it. When our minds come to rest on our blessings in marriage, our thankfulness will increase. Believe the facts. Don't just wait for your emotions to kick in. Next, we have to deal with the problem of expectations. We all bring expectations into marriage, don't we? It's unavoidable. We have expectations of what marriage should look like, should be like, what a husband or wife should be and do, how married life should progress, etc. Tara expected Vince to be more helpful with their new baby. She doesn't want to always have to ask him to help with diapers, bathing, and bottle washing. Vince expected Tara to do pretty much everything with his assistance only occurring once in a while. After all, he doesn't expect Tara to go to work or to do any of his responsibilities. You could probably guess these clash of expectations lead to some pretty heated conflicts. While Tara and Vince need some biblical counseling to work out their roles and responsibilities, another later podcast, what they have to guard against is their lack of thankfulness for the other person. This will only make matters worse. And the longer they are married, the more the expectations will rise. Things that didn't bother us before bother us now. Certain behaviors were quickly overlooked and forgiven in the early days, but not so much anymore. And the bar tends to go up on what is expected from your spouse. So the problem is not expectations, but learning to avoid unrealistic expectations and recognizing when we need to be more patient and gracious. Our thankfulness can diminish because our expectations are way too high. We can't have zero expectations in marriage, but we can strive for a higher contentment and satisfaction with what we have. That will lead to much more thankfulness. And then we need to learn how to communicate gratitude in marriage. If you are thankful for your spouse, do you regularly communicate it? And then how do you express it? First, do you tell God that you're thankful for your spouse? Thanksgiving is an essential commanded part of prayer. You may be asking God for all sorts of things regarding your marriage and your spouse, but are you also thanking God for your spouse? Then do you communicate this to your spouse on a regular basis? Early in my marriage, my wife Marty would greet me at the door almost every night with these words. Thanks for going to work today so I can stay home and raise and nurture our children. That never got old. Are you quick to say thank you for any and everything your spouse does for you? Is it a cultural thank you out of obligation, or does it really come from your heart? Do you tell others how thankful you are for your spouse? Sometimes it's easier to joke about your spouse or even tell others negative things about him or her. But how often do you share how thankful you are? Communicating gratitude to your spouse on a regular basis will go a long way to creating an environment of love and grace. And always keep in mind the positive consequences of thankfulness. Thankfulness has its consequences. Think about how having a grateful heart changes everything in your life. When you are grateful, it is much easier to give to others. It is a heart of gratitude that drives giving of our time, of our money, 
of our affections. When you are grateful for your spouse, affectionate words are said, kindness given, and you actually enjoy your marriage. Thankfulness has the positive consequence of giving more and more grace to your spouse. When we are grateful for having a relationship with another person, we are much more willing to overlook sins and mistakes and forgive quickly. Thankfulness may seem like the consequence of good behavior, but it also works the other way around. When thankfulness springs from the heart, it leads to loving thoughts and actions. And then finally, also keep in mind the negative consequences of ingratitude. As you may know from personal experience, a lack of thankfulness has negative consequences for your marriage. Ingratitude is the fuel for discontentment, bitterness, and anger, and depression. Remember that ingratitude is the mark of the pagan heart. When Christians stop being thankful, we stop loving and giving. We stop honoring and respecting our spouses. Ingratitude inevitably leads to a victim mentality, where we see ourselves as the one getting the shaft, the one suffering the most, and the one giving the most with little in return. It also turns back to God and disappointment and maybe even anger. Why did you give me this spouse? Why won't you change him? And in the worst case, ingratitude in marriage leads spouses to put their affections elsewhere. This can be into their work, their hobbies, their children, or even sinfully into an affair. Ingratitude brings apathy that causes us to quit on our true love and seek out others instead. So consider today the need for more peacemaking and thankfulness to be infused into your marriage. What a great rest and contentment it will bring to your life as the peace of Christ rules your heart and your marriage. Thank you for listening to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney. This weekly podcast is supported by Biblical Counseling and Training Ministries, which you can learn more about at bctministries.com. If you have found yourself encouraged or challenged today, please share this podcast with your church, family, and friends. Rate us on iTunes and your social media outlets. It really helps. Until next time, may you enjoy the riches of God's compassionate grace and mercy in your life.